Pilot Boys in the building. Welcome to the Pilot Boys podcast, where you'll get the real on all things sports, music, and pop culture. Today is October 22nd, 2020. Exciting times here at, at the Pilot Boys podcast. First, want to give a shout out to Mecca Don for joining us for 50 episodes. We had a lot of fun. He brought a lot into the show and, and helped create the platform that we have now. And I wanted to welcome our new co-host, who I'm really, really excited about. Got You guys got to know him on uh, a couple episodes ago when we had him on for interview, Partha Anuva, who is the CEO of Lasso Gear. Um, wanted to hand that over to you and introduce you to our audience. What's up, V, man? Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be a part of Pilot Boys. So uh, just to give some context to the listeners, I... Uh, randomly linked with V and Mecca through our mutual friend Rama, who is based in Texas and does some uh, video work with um, his firm, Close Up 360. They do a lot of really cool content with NBA players. And I had met Rama super randomly. He's like, you need to meet my boy V. I was like, okay, that sounds good. And we all ended up being from Ohio. We all ended up Ohio State fans. We're all brown just a, a super random coincidence. And when I got in touch with uh, Via Mecca, it was just uh, a really, really special energy. I'm a big fan of uh, the Pile Boys podcast and what it, what it really stands for, what the brand stands for. And uh, it aligns a lot with what we care about at Lasso in terms of, you know, yeah, energy, activity. And so when I heard that Mecca was stepping down and um, I was asked to step in, it was just like an immediate like, absolutely. Are you kidding me? Like, this is awesome. So I'm really grateful for the opportunity to the listeners. Hopefully I will serve as a decent stand in for Mecca, although I don't know if anybody can uh, hold a flame to the kind of energy he brings. Uh, but I'm really, really grateful for this opportunity and excited to talk about sports, business, entertainment, life and everything with you guys for the next however long we go. Yep, and that that's that's the key here for for me. And when I was looking, and Mecca and I were looking for a new co-host, I was like, we need to have someone who has the same energy, who's interested in the same things, and can carry a conversation about all the different subjects and topics that we take. And it was very serendipitous how our relationship uh, kind of came together. I know we're both big fans of of the book The Alchemist, and and how the right energy comes into your life at the right times. And and you've got to move forward with that and and without hesitation. And I'm I'm really excited about what we're gonna do. Yeah, me too, man. It's time to talk some college football. We're welcoming back Zach Smith of Menace to Sports. Zach, meet our new co-host, Partha. I'm looking forward to uh, to working with two Dublin natives. We just figured well, that out. <laughs> I, I, I said it in, in a group chat with both of you, but but it needs to be on the show that you needed more Dublin blood on the show. For it really to explode, you need more people from Dublin. That's the key. So I'm fired <laughs> up. That's a popular saying in the entertainment industry. You get a few people from Dublin on there, it goes. It goes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to it. Um, so the time is here. We are ready for Ohio State football season. We've been talking about a lot of other college football stories to, to pass the time, but 
Ohio State is back in business this Saturday, Zach. Um, they're playing Nebraska. So I'm not sure if, if Nebraska has gotten any better. Um, just want to get your thoughts on on what you're seeing from the team, what you're hearing from practice, and and what you see in this matchup this weekend. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a uh, obviously this is payback for to Nebraska from the Big Ten, kind of you know for the lawsuit and everything they did to try to get football back. The Big Ten was like, all right, you want football back? Here you go, game one at the at the horseshoe. Have fun. Um, <laughs> so it's it, it's it's fitting that these two teams will play one so they can get it out of the way. And then both fan bases will be rooting for the other team the rest of the year. Uh, but, but I think it's going to be an interesting game for two reasons. One is Ohio state's really pissed off. Not only did they lose to Clemson and that left a bad taste in their mouth, but also they had their season canceled then reinstated schedules came out. I and mean, this is like the fourth, third schedule they've gotten. And I think they're like, all right, enough's enough. When, when a whistle blows, we're going we're gonna to show you what we've been working on because you try to take it from us. And so I think the unfortunate recipient of that is Nebraska. Um, I think Nebraska will be better. This is going to be a bad, a bad day to show that. But, you know, Adrian Martinez comes back after having a really a lackluster sophomore year. And Scott Frost was able to invest a full offseason, you know, as much as you could with COVID and Zooming, but um, in developing him. And they got, they got four guys back on the O-line. Um, I think five guys back in the in the uh, back end of the defense, the back seven. So it should be an improved version of Nebraska. It's just unfortunate they have to go through the buzzsaw in Columbus. You know. So it's, wh- yeah. where are you looking? Where are you looking to see from 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 Ohio State? What are kind of the measuring sticks for a matchup like this, where where the team is clearly overmatched, right? Yeah, but I mean, you it's- still have to do what you do and and and. And get better, right? Yeah. Well, I tell you what, I've gotten really, I've gotten a lot better at evaluating teams against lesser opponents because if you want to evaluate Clemson, that's really the only, uh, the only uh, canvas that you have to watch, right? Is is them against someone that has no business playing them. So I think it's it's really key to to try to take something away from a game that Ohio State should win handily. And what I'm interested to see is Justin Fields, how he gets the ball out of his hands, how efficient he is in the pocket. Uh, that's that's number one on offense. Number two, I'm I'm excited to watch Trey Sermon. I mean, they they needed a big time back to replace J.K. Dobbins, and they went out and got themselves one. And so I'm excited yeah. to see him play. We'll learn something about Trey. Uh, and then I'm also excited to see this this young receiver core play. If it is a game that Ohio State handles the way they should, you're going to see a lot of young guys play later in the game, and it'll give you a kind of a glimpse at what this year could look like. And I always go back to you watch some of these rookie receivers in the NFL. It's no different than a young receiver in college, right? Justin Jefferson came out the first couple games, three games, and was, you know, got a catch here or there, just kind of learn how to play at that level. And the last three weeks, he's on the Vikings just absolutely exploding for 40 fantasy points and just going off because they figure it out. And I think that's going to be key for, for the receiver group to figure out who is going to be able to play really, really well at a young age. Because you know Garrett Wilson, you know Chris Olave. Those two are, should be stars, right? So I'm, I'm looking at that. And then I, I did a part of on my show about Devontae Adams and Jalen Waddell at, at Alabama, how there's not really a duo, a tandem in college football that is on the le- that level. Yeah. And I think Olave and Garrett Wilson, are the are, that's the one. That's the one tandem yes. who could be. Mm-hmm. I'm not ready to say they're going to be, but that you're going to see that, right? They're going against an inferior uh, Nebraska team. Now, Nebraska has both corners back, so they're going to be experienced corners they're going against. So that's what I'm excited to see on offense, those things. I think the offensive line is going to be outstanding. I'm also injured. We talked about it a, a couple episodes ago 
about what they decide to do personnel wise. Do they play two tight ends with Jeremy Ruckert and uh, and Luke Farrell more yeah. than they they have in the past? Because those two those are two I NFL players. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's on offense, and then on defense, it's it's all going to be. I'm excited to see what Larry Johnson does with his defensive line. Is there a rotation? What guys are getting the majority of snaps? How effective is the pass rush? Is Zach Harrison ready to take a step and get into that elite pass rush mold that has been that Ohio State fans big, quite, big, big shoes to fill. Yeah, I mean, like Ohio State fans are so spoiled. This poor kid will have like eight sacks, and they'll be like, "He sucks." We need <laughs> better players. Um, and then the secondary, just to see. Again, who plays? Um, I, I, Nebraska has a kid, Wandale Robinson, who we kind of recruited when I was at Ohio State, who's a really dynamic, smaller receiver. And it'll be interesting to see how they handle him. And then who's playing in the secondary? Is it two safeties, two corners? Is it three corners and a safety? You know, is it? they've done so much with Pete Warner at playing as a hybrid linebacker slash safety. And they, they've been so multiple that it's just going to be interesting to see what they roll out on the field on Saturday. I think they'll perform well in all phases, but it's going to be cool to see, like, what it? What is the projection moving forward? What direction are they heading? You know. Yeah. Hey Zach, do you think there's any pressure to make a statement win, given that the football season's already been underway? Ohio State coming in, you know, um, they have to really earn a top ranking this year, and there's there's a lot of momentum already going for Clemson for Alabama. Um, do you think there's pressure, especially with a new younger core, uh, to perform? Um, that's that's a lot different than starting a season normally. Yeah, I mean, I think th- there's definitely a, an entirely different dynamic for sure. Um, and I felt that kind of pressure in 2014 with Cardale Jones against Wisconsin mm-hmm. in the Big Ten Championship game. That that I would classify as pressure to make a statement, right? Mm-hmm. This feels different to me because it's almost like the pressure they've put on themselves or like the desire to just absolutely go out there and explode in this game is is – is inherent like it's self-motivated that I don't even know that they care about anything except playing football and just dominating someone and so uh w- with veteran leaders like Justin Fields and, and some of these guys like the linebacking core are all like fourth fifth year guys I think they're really going to be just antsy like like a horse about to come out of the Kentucky Derby gates right like they're just sitting there like I don't care about anything else I just want to run <laughs> yeah so uh, there, there definitely is pressure outside, right? The national media, the national landscape, I think, w- has pressure on Ohio State to kind of reestablish themselves as a top two team because now we're voting them at like five or something outrageous. But I don't think they feel it. I think they're just excited to play and they just can't wait to absolutely just go off. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how else to put it. Wanted well, to key in on your specialty here. You know, we saw the big jump that Chris Olave took from year one to year two. Um, now he's going from year two to year three. Where does he need to grow? And then we also saw Garrett Wilson come in as a freshman and play very well, right? Obviously, what steps does he need to take from year one to year two? Well, you know what's cool to watch the the maturation and growth of a player through their career. And Chris Olave now is is I mean he's the guy. He's the patriarch of the room. Whereas he came in as a freshman and got to learn from the best leaders I've ever been around in Paris Campbell, Terry McLaurin, Johnny Dixon. And then the next year, he still had some grown ass men, some serious like they're pros. They weren't pros yet, but they were pros. Austin Mack, KJ Hill. I mean, Ben Victor, he he got to kind of follow their lead. And now they're all gone <laughs> and it's him and a bunch of young guys. Yeah. And so it's going to be cool to watch because I know the kid. I know the personality of him. I know his family. and 
he's a grown ass man. He always has been. He just hasn't had to be that guy yet. And yeah. so now he's in the role where I, I see it. I mean, I've heard from from people in the program. I see you see it on promotional videos. Just a stern, like square jaw look about him when he's in a workout or doing anything. It just looks like reminds me of like a Navy SEAL where you're like, oh, man, mm-hmm. that kid's about <laughs> to just have a year. Yeah. Yeah. And, and on Garrett Wilson. Oh, Garrett, Garrett, that's my favorite. I, I don't know if it's necessarily freshman to sophomore jump, but it's almost like first year playing to second year playing jump. Where now you had a whole offseason to digest the fact that you just played college football. Like you just yeah. played for Ohio State. That's what they go through. <laughs> the first year they play, they're like, holy shit, I'm playing for Ohio State. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I can't imagine. I never did it. Um, but they go through that and then they have a whole offseason di- to digest it. And it's so motivating. And then they go out as sophomores and it's like been here before. Time to take it up another uh, another level, yeah. and and I'm excited to see it because he also is a great kid and a, and a hardworking human being, let alone football player. I'm really excited about the receivers and Justin Fields this year, for sure. Do you think we'll see any changes to the playbook um, to accommodate the the changes on the offensive side of the ball? Well, yeah, I mean they're going to have to. Um, I think that having young receivers, you're not going to throw a ton at them. You're going to throw most of it. I mean, at this point, they've had, they all came in early. So they've had 10 months of whatever you want to call this offseason. And, uh, but I think that the real thing that's going to be interesting to see is if they play with more two tight ends, what does that do to the playbook? You might see more two tight end attached and you might see Jeremy Ruckert out in the slot because he, that's honestly where he thrives. And so if that happens, then yeah, it, it opens up an, an entire different world of shifting and motioning and, and going from two tight end sets and getting to a one tight end set with a second tight end. There's just so many little things they can do that I think, I mean, Ryan Day's brilliant. And I think it's going to be really cool to watch how they employ different personnel packages, different formations, and kind of identify and and feature the skill set of the talent they have. Because it's going to be different. You don't have KJ Hill who caught a million footballs in his career in the slot anymore. You get you're going to have to do something a little different, right? And so it's going to be cool to see because, Ryan, if there's a guy that I think is is ahead of the game and, and one of the top offensive minds in football, it's Ryan Day, for sure. One last, cool. one last question on Ohio State before we, we move on to other less relevant topics in college football. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the different experience, right? You know what that feeling is for the players, the coaches, the staff of going into the horseshoe and seeing 110,000 people there, they're going to go into an empty stadium. Um, tell us how that might impact the game and, and, and these players and the coaches. Well, the first thing, before we start talking about that, we got to talk about the real issue here. And that, that's the fact that Brutus can't be in the stadium, man. Brutus, oh, wow. Brutus really? man. Brutus and the cheerleaders can't come. I'm like, Does free Brutus. Like, Brutus has a big head on. Like he he ain't breathing COVID on anybody. Yeah. <laughs> it's unbelievable. He can't be one of those sixteen hundred in the stadium. Uh, so we we got to get that movement going. Hashtag free Brutus. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I think it'll be definitely different, right? It's definitely a different dynamic. I think it'll be the good thing is Ryan. I've I've already seen and I've I've talked to a couple coaches. They're, they've done a great job of of scrimmaging in the horseshoe, right? Going in and practicing in the horseshoe. So it's it, it's not going to be weird because they've been practicing in there with no one there. And so when you add a couple people, they'll be like, oh, there's actually people here. You know, it's not going to be that electric, roaring crowd, but they're preparing for it. I think at home, it's certainly going to be less, I guess, less uh, different than when they go on the road. Because when you go on a road game, you're expecting to walk into this hostile environment. Guys that have played, 
And when they go to Penn State next week, it's, they're going to walk in and be like, oh, this is not what I remember from two years ago. <laughs> um, and so you're, there's going to be some home field advantage stuff that that is taken away, and, and it's a different dynamic. How do guys play with less crowd, right? Because some guys thrive off of that stuff. Some guys don't care. They, they just go do their thing, you know? Uh, be, but it's one of those things where it's it's a facet of the game now this year, and it has to be. And it's just about who can respond better. And usually the better teams respond to any aspect of a game or atmosphere better than the worst teams, right? Yeah. And you actually have a, have an, a, an experience going on this weekend. We've, we've talked about it a couple of times, but see, you get ready. Mecca off the show and you, and now I don't get in trouble. You don't call it a tailgate. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about what you have going on. Yeah, it's, it's, I'm fired up for it, man. It's all coming together and it, um, Whoa. Oh, my bad. Uh, something happened to my mic. Yeah, it's all coming together. It's going to be awesome. It's uh, the Ace on Lane. It's down at the Point on Lane, which is right next to Varsity Club. And we got it. We got it blown out. We've, we we actually got a bunch of sponsorship money from from some alcohol companies. So we cut the prices to get you know as, as many people there as we can. We're going to do a live pregame show, and uh, we're going to. I mean, it's got everything. Braxton Miller is going to be there. A, a number of other former players just to watch the game, talk about it, give my insight. And just hang out, all you can eat, have a couple drinks, and and watch the Buckeyes and celebrate the fact they're playing football. And, and how can people get tickets? Uh, Ministersports.com. It's all on our website. Um, and and if they're Patreon subscribers, I know you guys have Patreon. Patreon subscribers yep. uh, have discounts. You know, we're trying trying to take care of subscribers and trying just trying to get people there at an affordable cost. Really, is what we're trying to do. Definitely be a great experience. Check it out if you're in town. Unfortunately, I'm not going to be in town, but um, definitely looking forward to catching one of them soon. For sure. Now let's move on to our favorite friends, Dan Mullen. Oh, my guy. Catching COVID, your your best friend. Oh, oh share Dan. Your, share your thoughts on old Dan. Um, I think it's I think it's hilarious, to be honest. I mean, I don't I, I don't know if you can call it hilarious when someone catches COVID, but assuming he, he everything goes okay and he's fine, which I'm sure he probably will be, like most people his age. It's 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 just hilarious that he was such a we talked about it, such a petulant little baby after losing a game and talking about packing the stadium. And then his whole team catches it, he catches it. It's like now you can't coach for two weeks, Dan. Good job. Um, but you know, obviously hope hoping he makes a full full recovery, but it is just it is karma. As, as you even said, it's just karma at its finest. Like, okay, you don't want to respect this. Here you go. You can have it. <laughs> yep, exactly. Exactly. Um, and then we saw the ACC. This one hurts part a little bit because he attended, attended this school, but Clemson just blew the brakes off of Georgia Tech. And then also – Not to be unexpected this year, by the way. Clemson's a really, really good team. And Georgia Tech is starting to transition from an option to a spread offense. So we're still in the middle of that. So thank you very much. It's going to take some time. <laughs> Hopefully the, the ACC needs someone because we have that storyline. And then we also have number five, North Carolina, getting their ass whooped um, as well. Yeah, you know what? Uh, the Clemson game was—I I don't know if I've seen it a half like that. I mean, I—I I said on my show, and I—it's not exactly what happened, but I believe it could have happened. Is when they went in at halftime, I think the starters should have just showered up and put on their street clothes and came out and watched the second half because they, it was—it was ridiculous. I mean, Travis at the end didn't even have to run the ball. Like I think he had like forty-five yards rushing because Trevor was throwing it all over the field. Just—I mean, it was—it was fireworks in the first half and. And but I will say Georgia Tech has a good young quarterback. He's a true freshman, and I really like him. I think that a year or two from now, Georgia Tech's going to be a, a lot better than they are right now. Um, but that was 
that was a, a I don't know that anyone could expect 73 to 7. I mean, I don't know if you saw Clemson got to the point in the fourth quarter. They put their fourth string quarterback in. So they played four quarterbacks, and the fourth string quarterback is their punter. So they put him in oh, wow. trying not to score. Uh, it was, I've never seen it's one of the games like you're like, wow, that was a, a conference game. That's <laughs> unbelievable. <laughs> but, and then the other end of the spectrum is, is North Carolina. And, and I, so I, North Carolina was my team that I thought might be able to give Clemson a run. And I'm not ready to say they can't do that, but they my concerns about them were proven true. Their defense is just subpar. And, and Sam Howe played, actually played really well. He just yeah. doesn't have anyone on his team. His, his skill set around him is terrible. And you go to the end of that game. I mean, they, they have a horrible first half. They battle back with like three minutes remaining. They're driving, or I mean, two minutes remaining. They're driving. That's what you want, right? You're playing a conference game. You have a big-time quarterback. You want the ball in your hands with two minutes to go to drive down and score to win the game. That's every NFL game you watch. That's what you want with a big-time quarterback. He had it, and they drove down the field. They, they did a decent job. They get into Florida State's territory, and, and the guy goes three passes in a row to end the series all three were drops. I mean, on the money, like moving the sticks, and they dropped all three. Fourth down was absurd. Wide open right along the sideline. He throws it for a first down, and the kid just it goes in and out of his hands. So he just has no help, and it's unfortunate that they don't have better skill because now I definitely don't think they can give Clemson a run like I was hoping they could, but it was just a oh pitiful game. <laughs> yeah. Last question before we get you out of here. The landscape is different now, right? Ohio State has entered the picture. It, we know what we kind of pretty much know. It's Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State, we're assuming. Georgia got blown out by Alabama this weekend. Who's going to be the fourth team? Is it going to be an SEC school? Who else do you see potentially is going to fill in that fourth slot? Well, so I, I look at quarterback play, right? That's, that's I think, where you start. Obviously, if, if a team rattles off an undefeated se season, regular season, they're going to make the playoffs, right? If Oklahoma State or Oregon wants the Pac-12 plays, I think they would make a case to be that fourth team. But when I look at quarterback play, that's where I, that's where I start, right? The best quarterbacks in the country usually are the teams that that end up in the playoffs. You see it almost every year. And I've said it from the beginning, Georgia does not. They have a former walk-on who's about as average as the day is long. So I never thought Georgia would be that team, but they did have a solid defense. So the team that I'm looking at is Oklahoma State. I look at so I look at adjusted completion percentage. That's my big stat this year, right? That means that how well is the quarterback playing? Taking out uh any time he got hit when he was throwing or the receiver dropped the ball or when he threw it away as a smart decision, you know, to avoid a sack. You take all that out and you look at adjusted completion percentage. So I'm going to get to the top quarterback in the country in a second, but it, the the order is Mac Jones at Alabama, right? Is two, uh, tra uh, Trevor Lawrence is three from Clemson, and then the kid at Oklahoma State is four. Now the number one quarterback in the United States of America, at every analytic grade, adjusted completion, deep ball percentage, anything you want to look at, the kid at BYU is outstanding. He's the, he's playing better than anyone in the country. So I'm not here to say BYU is going to be the fourth team, but there's next no reason Steve, they shouldn't be talking be the about next Steve Young. I mean, he could be right, and they're five and zero. Oh, like, what? Give BYU a shot. Yep. <laughs> if they can win out, yeah. I'd much rather see them make it over that Georgia team we just watched get blown out by Alabama or Florida. I mean, I. That, it's, a that year, was, it's, it's a year to give another team a chance. I think hey, it's twenty twenty. BYU might win it all. Yeah, yeah. Know what's gonna happen. <laughs> now, I'll just say it right now. As a Georgia Tech fan, I would be very, very happy to see Georgia not make the playoffs. <laughs> oh, I, I believe it. I believe it. And to be honest, Georgia shouldn't. 
Georgia, mm-hmm. their offense is is not a high-powered offense. They don't have the quarterback. They have one receiver in Kiaris Jackson. The, the outside receivers, George Pickens, they're just okay right now. They're still young, and, and their defense is solid, but they got exposed. I will say this. The one thing to Georgia's credit is they, they kind of got exposed by Bama on defense, but I don't know that there is a defense in the country that's not going to look that way against that Bama offense. I don't. Yeah. I think to play with Bama, you have to play how Lane Kiffin did. You got to do some things to make them tired, and you got to try to score with them. You're not going to yeah. stop them. I mean, yeah. the duo they have at receiver, Najee Harris is probably the best back in the country, him and Travis Etienne. I mean, it's just they're just loaded. And Mac Jones is one of the most efficient quarterbacks in the country. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Zach, it's it's exciting. The time is here. We we all can get into college football for real now. Um, and throughout the season, you have to make sure you follow Zach at Coach Zach Smith on Twitter and listen to his podcast, Menace to Sports best college football podcast out there. Thanks for joining us, Zach. Yeah, anytime, man. I'm excited. I'm excited for next week to talk about some Buckeyes, some real, like what really happened and like touchdowns and stuff like that. (laughs) Thanks, Zach. Thanks, Zach. Take care. Appreciate it, guys. Love the Pilot Boys podcast? Support us on Patreon. Supporters can pledge as little as $1. We have some cool perks on there. Check out www.patreon.com forward slash Pilot Boys podcast. Show us some love today. Excited about our next guest, Reza Sarafia. I get it right. The Indians and Persians, man. We can we can we can work it out. He's uh, the national director of Rock Nation Rock Nation. Um been a career industry veteran. Really excited about talking about your career and your experiences. And I'm sure Partha is too. Partha is a is a hip hop head. A little bit younger than us, but still yeah. to be probably Partha. I'm 27, man. Oh, yeah. You're definitely a little bit younger. <laughs> yeah. But you know what? I'm excited to get into this with you, man. You've got an exciting story, and uh, I'm I'm really looking forward to digging in. Thanks, man. I'm looking forward to it, too. So let's talk. Be- before we start, though, I got, we got to ask you a question. You know, mm-hmm. Martha's in L.A. You're in L.A. Where did the Persians get all this money out there, man? Where mm-hmm. are you so wealthy out there? You should, you should understand that the, uh, I don't, without going too deep into Persian history for you, yep. uh, the people that were able to leave Iran during the revolution were the, were the middle class and upper middle class. The only okay. people that didn't leave were the extremely wealthy clerics and clergy that owned land and the extremely poor that couldn't leave that, that were leading the revolution. Kind of similar to what's happening in the United States right now. It was the rich leading the poor into their own doom. Yeah. Um, so all the people that were intelligent, the entire brain drain, ha- drain happened and all the intelligent, wealthy people moved to Los Angeles, pretty much. I, I'm not even going to say America, Los Angeles, into what we call Tehrangelis, which is between where me and Partha live right in the middle in Westwood. <laughs> and, um, you know, the last mayor of Beverly Hills was Persian. And there's actually a, a separation of Persians here in L.A. Too, that people don't realize is there's the Jewish Persians and the Muslim Persians, yes. which I don't really associate with either because I'm not I'm not a very big religious person. But yeah. people don't even realize that the largest uh, population of Jews outside of Israel before 1980 was in Iran. They all came here to America in L.A. So and a lot of them were actually Armenians, which are living up by by uh, where Parth is at, too. Yeah. There's a lot of Armenians, yeah. too. I've so got a. Uh, I've got a Jewish Persian basketball group that actually playing sometimes over in Westwood. Yeah. yeah the, the Muslim ones live further south in Orange County and Palos Verdes and, and all, all the West LA ones are pretty much Jewish usually. So your, your story is unique, right? Your family emig- immigrated over here. Think, mm-hmm. Did you guys come to California 
first is that here? The city we came to was Torrance, California. Yeah, it's and, a wow. We had family out here already. So, you know, we just followed in their footsteps. Nice. And so as a, as a first generation American getting into the music industry, what kind of was your initial inspiration? Because obviously you have to have a love or a passion for this thing to be in, be in it as long as you've been like, can you, highlight you know no, you- the way the way you you presented that is very cliche right it's 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 supposed to be that but uh, my story is very atypical i i was actually a poli sci major i had no i didn't even know my job that i have existed i i didn't know that people got paid to go out and take people out to party and have fun with them and convince them to do what they want to do i mean i thought only you know lobbyists and pharmaceutical reps did that but essentially <laughs> that's what my job is um, I lucked into it. I, I had no intentions. I was a poli sci major. I was planning on graduating and then going to law school. It just happened to be a, a culmination of events that occurred. I was waiting on tables. I waited on a guy. He offered me an opportunity that sounded interesting. Um, and at the time when I weighed my options, I was 22 years old, going on 23. I I messed up, messed around. I don't know if we're about to curse on this podcast, no, but yeah, I, I, I fucked around and wasted the first two years after high school going on to San Diego and ruining my, my educational career and putting a whole bunch of bad grades on my report card. So when he approached me, I had just about finished El Camino and I was about to matriculate to UCLA. I'd already done the paperwork and been accepted as my transfer. And he offered me a job. And he, the way he presented it to me was, you know, how much do you make here? And we had known each other over the passing of maybe 15, 20 minutes of conversation because he had sat on my table once before and this is the second time. And I said, you know, I make $60,000 a year part-time. This is in 2003, and which I did. And 20 hours a week, I would make about $50,000, $60,000 a year. So he said, okay, well, I'll give you 65 plus overtime to be my assistant. I'm like, well, shit, uh, what do you do? So he's like, you know, come by and check it out. I work at a record label. I do music. And, you know, I was in a high-end restaurant uh, by the name of Fleming's, which is a steakhouse. So we used yeah. to get a lot of side offers and things like that when we made relationships with the with the business owners but this was a little different so i went up there and i hung out for like a day and i saw it was really not hard it was just a bunch of people just hanging out there was some work being done but it was mostly just goofing off this would look like anyway and that was it and you know and then he asked me if i liked the job and i said sure i could do it and, and is there a place to grow he said absolutely all my last assistants are executives now and then when i weighed my options and i looked at it and i had two more years of undergrad and three years of postgrad and I'm 23 going on 24, I'm, I'm thinking I'm not going to start my life until 30 to start generating income. I can't do that. That's, yeah. you know, that's scary. And not as scary as telling your Persian parents that you're going to drop out of your <laughs> four year amazing school and go work for a black man to do hip hop music. But that's what I did. Yes. So um, that was the beginning of it. And then there was 14 hour days and that I did that for about a year and a half, 14 hour day, 6 a.m. in the office. Uh, sometimes I would sleep in the office because we'd have to be out to Hollywood till about two or three in the morning working. Driving back down to where I lived was a, was a pain in the ass. So I would actually sleep in my boss's office. We kept a few of us did this the assistance. We kept an iron in there, toothbrush, you know, back in the day when things weren't as mobile, blackberries were just starting to come out. I had to be at that landline at 630 to start the conference call for everybody in the morning. So it was just easier to do that. And then after a year, they moved me out to Cleveland, which is when I made your acquaintance, yes. 2006, which was, uh, uh, I got to be honest, it was a culture shock. I mean, I, yeah. I don't grown up here in L.A. and San Diego. And then to go from L.A. and San Diego to where there is segregation and, and you know, some racism, but it's not blatant. It's not yeah. Midwest America blatant. You know, and yeah. I hope I don't offend anybody, but I have to understand it's different cultures. 
And I showed up to Cleveland and it's like, I'm the only guy in the, my shade anywhere I go. And, but nevertheless, my $5 buys two drinks, not. <laughs> yeah. So it was, <laughs> it was really a, a balancing a culture shock kind of thing. And 10 months later, uh, the labels were doing so well in 2007 that they actually moved me back. And, you know, one of the things that worked for me out there was that I came to the music business without being a music head or a music, music business type of guy. A lot of people that get into the music business, they kind of lose sight of the work and get lost in the glory. Yeah. And, and I came from a corporate type of mentality before this because of my, my college education and my uh, interning at different places and whatnot outside of waiting on tables. I just succeeded by just doing my job, just literally just doing my job, what I was supposed to do and following through. And I achieved things in the Ohio Valley that previous reps hadn't been able to do and broke some acts out there. So. They brought me back to LA. We split Interscope and Geffen apart and they had me and another gentleman running the Interscope side and someone else was running the Geffen side. So nice. it was interesting to become the boss of the people that were your peers and uh, your boss's employees not too long ago. Yeah, and take us into that, right? Because yeah. you said you rose by doing the work. Um, you did You did some good networking too, um, but you did the work and you worked consistently. And I think that's that's important for people to recognize that even in, in industries where there's a lot of flash, the people who do the work rise to the top. And I think when you went over to Interscope, you started collecting accolades. First, you were the youngest national director. You got placed on billboards 30, 30 under 30. Take us into that, where you went from the guy working. Did, did, you, did you actually look at that 30 under 30? Did you, have you seen the article? This is the craziest thing about that article. Right? I remember when it happened, you sent so, it. Or I, I you can find it on Google Books. And, and it's funny because people ask me for a bio. And the easiest way to send them a bio is to actually send them the blurb still from there. Yeah. And, 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 one, and about four years ago, I was looking at it. And I, and I noticed the way they did the 30 under 30 is there would be one guy highlighted on the page and like four or five other guys on that page. And they would caricaturize the one guy. On my page, I was the highlighted caricaturized guy. And in the bottom right, there's a tiny little blurb about this guy named Mark Zuckerberg on the same page as me. Oh, wow. To, to think about <laughs> the different trajectories since then, I'm, I'm a little envious, to be honest. But <laughs> you've, done well, you, you've done pretty well, too. I've done all right. Yeah, you know, I, I, I can sleep better at night. That, that's the difference between me and him. So um, to, to your point, especially in an industry like this, your hard work stands out more because it's it stands because it stands out more in, in an industry like banking, MBA, those those people have been trained from young life to be able to overachieve and overachieve and overachieve. In our business, there is no minimum requirement uh, prerequisites to join the business, except knowing someone that wants to bring you along and likes you. That's literally it. This is, you know, it's funny. I was listening to a podcast. I've been really listening to this Smartless podcast with Jason Bateman and Will Arnett and these guys. And Jason Bateman made the made the best comment about our business, and it's kind of what led me to leave Interscope, is that our business is not a meritocracy. Our business is the furthest thing you can have from a meritocracy where your hard work will equal to harder and higher gaining and, and better standing. It could actually work against you. I mean, it's but you have to work smart in the industry and work towards the right goal. I was lucky enough that my rise wasn't just because of my hard work. I, I, I came in under a guy named Garnett March, who actually hired me out of the restaurant and, and all praised him for showing me this world and giving me these opportunities. He he didn't just bring me on as a, as a warm body. That man literally threw me in head first into what he did every single day. 
I would listen on mute on his calls. I would I would talk to people on his behalf. I would follow up on things for him. In, in our industry, a lot of people don't realize that once you get to the level of SVP or president, you're not actually doing the work a lot of times anymore. The people that are actually doing the work are your assistants. And if they're presidential assistants, these guys are getting paid higher than most other employees at the company anyway. Jimmy Iovine's assistants were in the six figures. I mean, that's easy money because they have to be. Those guys are on call 24 hours a day all the time and, and their job is very vital. So they're essentially mini Jimmy's or, you know, all these guys are that way. So he afforded me the ability to build relationships on his name and his back, which a lot, which means a lot in this business. In, in our business, it's a very close, small circle. It's not looking for new friends. They're not looking for new people. So to build these relationships that I had to build, it took a lot of help from the people around me and some, you know, doors being open for me. And, and it, it hurt me and it helped me at the same time that I wasn't black too, because this was really my first introduction into, yeah. into black urban culture, because I, I was this violin playing, three language speaking scholar that came from England to America. And then in 91, I wasn't even allowed to listen to rap when I came to America because all my parents knew about rap music is it was gangsters and violence. And I mean, when I first got my first raps cassette, it was a, uh, the doggy style album and I had to hide it from my parents for months. You know, that's that's how I grew up. So it's it's different, you know, and 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 the difference is that these guys are 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 culturally so different than the area I grew up in, which is a bubble. And I had to adapt to such a different culture, not even just black culture, just just music culture and urban and entertainment culture, right? And and it's it was it was interesting and it took a lot of help and it took a lot of patience because it's it's hard when you're bright eyed, bushy tailed to not understand why people don't have the same enthusiasm and energy as you when you don't know the politics behind where they are, what they want and where their head wants to be. You know, so it, it was it was it was hard. But, you know, being being a boss, to the people that were my peers or used to be my superiors was also interesting. And I never really tried to take the role of listen to me because I'm better than you. That's, I, I know a few people in our industry that are younger executives that act that way. And it really goes the wrong way. It, it, it leads to a lot of people not wanting to follow you. It leads to you being a boss, but not a leader. I, I wanted to be a leader, but even then it's still kind of hard because as a 40 year old, how do you look at this guy that's 27 and say, I respect what you have to say when I watched you get introduced to this business a year ago and I've been doing it for 10 years. Yeah. It's hard. Yeah. So, you know, lucky for me, we had we had some great product, uh, some great oversight, great leadership. And then uh, one year later, the whole experiment uh, came down because 2008 happened. And then 2008, everything got, went to shit. So we eventually ended up letting go a lot of our staff. I mean, I had some great people working for me. One of my one of my regionals, Arnold Taylor, is now the baby's manager and running a label called SCMG. Uh, another one is over at uh, Capitol Records as a, as a SVP. Another one is over at Interscope, being uh, you know being great too. So it's it was a great staff, but because of the the economy, we had to cut it down. And I moved to Chicago to be a national director out of the Chicago region because I was the only single guy at the time that was you know uh, un, unattached and could get up and go. Yeah. So I moved to Chicago in 2008. I literally got my apartment the the night Obama got uh, elected when they had a parade down Michigan Avenue. And uh, that was probably a great four years of my life. Chicago was a, everything in our, on the radio and record side, a lot of people don't realize almost every executive and every head of uh, divisions 
has been through the Midwest. The Midwest is like the proving ground of all our businesses because there's no flash and show. You've got to actually just do work in the Midwest. Yeah. In the other parts of the country, you can do a lot of flash and show and get away and, and fudge the numbers because of the sheer population. Can't do that in the Midwest. So it's a little harder. Bradley, you've dropped so many just amazing tidbits. I want to I wanna dig into a little bit about your perspective coming from your, your passion and um, early, early interest for political science. Um, you, you mentioned it uh, about entertainment not being exactly meritocracy. Do you think your understanding of how our political system works uh, at an early age helped you navigate that scene? And do you think that people who want to get into the industry uh, should be looking at different topics of study that will help them better understand the dynamics of it? So I have, a, I have a, I'm glad you touched on that. It's a little left of what you said. I don't believe politics is the most important thing in our business. I think in, in all businesses, especially in America where it's a, it's, it's a capitalist society and, and there's open doors, I think the ability to use your confidence and your mouth are more important than anything else. And the ability to relate to people. That's mm -hmm. essentially what's helped me. And, and, and you know, at first, like I said, it was a hindrance that I wasn't black. But after a while, I figured out how to make it a positive on both sides. I mean. To put it bluntly, black people trusted me because I wasn't white and white people felt comfortable with me because I wasn't black. But I, I was in the middle of both those worlds and could navigate in between both. And so that's actually what helped me in Ohio. To be honest, one of the, we won't mention a couple of programmers names, but the word on the street was that they were biased against hip hop reps, urban reps, because it's a polite way of saying against black people, essentially. You know, they, they didn't respect black people, they didn't listen to black people. And they, they, these are white guys running black radio stations with black product, with black employees, but they just didn't show the same respect. And knowing this, despite my personal ethics and beliefs, I had a job to do. I dressed in a suit instead of looking like a hip hop guy and showed up to the guy like a business meeting and I earned his respect. I knew how to navigate in different rooms. That one of the biggest problems in the business is people don't believe they should adapt or navigate in different rooms. They insist on the room adapting to them. And you have to know how to, and, and that I think came from waiting on tables. Like waiting on tables really taught me how to associate and relate to people and maximize the relationship in a short amount of time. I think it's interesting that you came from such a humble perspective with it too, because everything that you're saying, you had no, no real ego or no real sense of how you should be perceived when you're walking into these rooms. But I think what stands out is that every single challenge that was in your past, um, you didn't address it with any sense of entitlement to the end product. Instead, you went in with an open mind to figure out the problem. You know, the entitlement, I think, is the right word. You use it. It's like I noticed a lot of people were upset at me because they felt almost entitled to the position that I had earned as, as Garnett's assistant. And then other people were upset at me because they felt entitled to the position I earned as the national. But you know, I never felt any of these things were were entitled to me. I just didn't know how to get them and I wanted to work hard to get them. I, and I think not coming from the musical background, again, helped me because I understood the concept of start from the bottom and work your way up. And I think the other thing that's that's always stood out to me about you is you don't get caught up in any of that, right? It's like, no matter what people are saying, you know what people are saying and you know these issues, but you have a kind of a laser focus of this is my job. Yeah. This is what I have to do. And I think a lot of us, especially in corporate environments and in business, it's very important to not get caught up in that stuff, especially yeah. when you have a job to do, because you have more peace that way. Yeah, uh, bro, you said it. So 2017, I quit in school for that reason. Not to cut you off, I'm sorry. I quit in school because of that reason. I was because, you know, this job makes it 
very toxic, especially my very niche field. I'm supposed to find ways to permeate into people's lives and make my product permeate into your life, right? It, it becomes tedious. It's like being married to every single radio programmer I deal with. I have to answer their phone calls at two in the morning. It's not that I have to. It's like I actually am friends with these people. And I feel the obligation to my friends to talk to them because my job is to actually be friends with these people. It's not just to get them to play the music. Over time, you become friends. It's shared experiences, create friends. And, and these are my friends. But it's hard to explain to my wife why I'm friends with a pretty 30-year-old in Miami and she has to call me at two in the morning about an artist and it can't wait till six the next day. Yeah. yeah that might be because the artist is supposed to be there, but that's a lot to try and tell my wife before I have to answer the phone <laughs> at two in the morning, which yeah. in my older age, I've managed to delegate and be smarter about the way I organize my life so people understand the limitations and boundaries. But I left Interscope in 2017 because it, it wasn't a meritocracy. It was becoming very toxic. I was starting to look at people as, as a commodity as opposed to humans and I didn't you know value real relationships anymore for a while. And I also had two kids at home, two girls that I didn't want to raise with a toxic parent that was coming home upset and angry because he has 5,000 relationships going on at one time and he can't turn his phone off. So I quit. And I actually was in a great situation and I quit with a very strong hand and walked out with quite a bit of money. And my whole intent was to leave the music business behind and um, do anything else that wasn't the music business. Literally like real estate, cars, whatever. So long story short, they gave me my vacation pay, which was a nice chunk. And my bucket list was to always play Pebble Beach uh, up in San Francisco. Yeah. So I go up there and um, a good friend of mine who works at Empire, she used to program the, the San Francisco station. She calls me and she's like, hey, you should come by, say hi to Ghazi and stuff. He'd like to meet you just to say hi, you know, no big deal. So I go in there and, and Ghazi and Empire offer me a substantial amount of money to help them with a couple of their acts for a couple of months as a consultant, which is a new field to me. I've never been a consultant before and I yeah. plan on leaving all this. <laughs> and the money that they gave, that they offered me, and I, I sat, I went home and I told the wife, I'm like, listen, even if I sell cars or real estate, like this kind of money can't be made in this short amount of time with me not being away from you guys for 60 to 80 hours a week. Like this is insane for me to turn this down. Yeah. Maybe I'll try this way and, 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 pick and choose the projects I work and who I work with so that I can keep myself more sane and do it my way as opposed to a big machine way. So I did that. And then a couple months later, um, a buddy of mine introduced me to a guy named Dooney. Dooney is, uh, I don't know if you guys know who Dooney is, but Dooney ended up being a guy that had a company called The Lights Global, who their biggest act originally was uh, Terrio, the, the, the fat kid that was doing dance yeah. Instagram yeah. and stuff. Yeah. Got their money off that and they became social influencer guys and then they blew up this little guy named Lil Pump, who nobody under 19 had any clue who this kid was, and including yeah. myself. But if you put it on Twitter or Instagram, and these guys had figured out the algorithms at the time, you were like inundated the way BTS inundates the people now with batshit crazy kids all over the, the shit commenting on Lil Pump. And, and I'm like, who the fuck is this kid, right? So these guys are like, yeah, we wanna, we wanna try and take this kid to radio. We've already got the SoundCloud success. And this is the beginning of SoundCloud really taking the lane of radio because up until now, you couldn't be a star in 2017 unless radio played your record. Yeah. Spotify still wasn't as huge as it is. Apple wasn't as huge as it is. SoundCloud isn't, was nothing. It was brand new. But what was happening was there was an entire world developing under 18 years old of these kids that were having their own outlets and weren't even touching radio or TV. Didn't even know the core acts that the rest of the world knew, but they had their own stars. 
Pop Smokes, the Triple X's, Extentacion, you know, uh, Takashi, all these kids found stardom in the 19 year old world before anybody in our age even knew about it. And the difference is, you know, in our time, our parents knew about the shitty acts they didn't like, they just wouldn't let us listen to it because there was only so many places we could hear music, either on their radio, their TV, or their computer. Now what had happened is there was a divergence of, of, of listeners and, and these listeners no longer needed their parents' car to listen to music. They're in the back seat streaming their own music on SoundCloud while their parents are listening to Rush Limbaugh, whatever the fuck they listen to. So this all happened in 2007 was the year that everybody realized, oh shit, there's no more gatekeepers. This shit is rampant out there. Yeah. Like and so I got on a bus with this kid, Lil Pump. It's me and a bunch of fucking 18 and 19 year olds, right? <laughs> Thankfully, I wasn't on Pump's bus. I was on the backup bus, the auxiliary bus where the crew was on. And it was, it was insane to watch a kid have so many screaming fans and he, he was, you know, antisocial. He's not a social kid. He's a 17 year old that's scared of the world, that's raised on, online. And in real life, he doesn't know how to talk to people. It's, it's really crazy. So, but that was, my, that was my introduction to where the music was going. And I had a hard time explaining to radio and to labels that look, what you guys are doing is, is, is coming past. These kids are gonna break without you. And you need to learn how to amplify what they're doing a different way. And it's not just airplay, it's appearances, it's pictures, it's content. And at this time, radio stations, iHeart was I was ahead of everybody else with setting up their own online content and stuff like that. The other stations had no clue what to even do with it. I had to teach radio stations like, hey, send your night guy down here with a camera. He's going to record it. Then he's going to post it. Then he's going to tag this guy, hashtag, tag, all that stuff. And then you can put it on these, on these socials and then promote it on your station. And I literally helped a bunch of radio stations develop their own social platforms because they didn't even have the concept of that. Just imagine these guys have millions of people listening to them. And you go to their Instagrams and their Facebooks, they have a thousand, two thousand followers. Like, how do you not have in the hundreds of thousands in a city like Los Angeles on your Instagram or a city like Cleveland or whatever? So that was the beginning of that. And so with the success I found with Gucci Gang, which was the beginning of, of my realization that music has changed, and I call it punk rap. It's 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 like punk rap. Because when you go to these shows, I, I grew up watching punk rap because I grew up surfing and everything, and there was people mosh pitting and all that shit. Then I went to this show and here's this kid rapping and it looks exactly like a punk rock show. They're yeah. jumping off the rafters, they're mosh pitting, they're overdosing on pills, which is a, a punk rock show. Yeah. Punk rock. And, and the audience is all 13 year old white kids. And then you realize that these kids are here because they don't have to pay anything more than attention because they, they don't have to invest $17.99 in a, in a CD to buy it. They just have to click, oh, they don't like it, next click. Oh, they don't like it, click, next. It's, all they can afford to pay is attention, and their parents are bringing them down, dropping them off by the bandfuls. And by the end of the tour, we had parent lounges on this shit where the parents would be sipping Chardonnay. <laughs> the venues figured out how to make some alcohol money because all these kids were so young, the venues were losing out because there's no bar sales. Yeah. So you walk up to the bar and get a drink in no time at every one of these shows. <laughs> so it was, the, it was the event of a new era, like, and then, and then, 10K, 10K Records came along and they're like, hey, can you help us with what you did over there? So we got this kid named uh, Takashi69 and this other kid named Trippy Red. Yeah. We have to develop a new style of working with these kids because these kids don't work well with radio. They're not yeah. polished. They're not groomed. They're not going to get on a mic and say, hey, everybody, go listen to my new album. They're going to get on the mic and say, yo, suck my dick. Fuck you, blah, blah, blah. And they do do that. And, and it works. In today's world, it works. Yeah. Viewed a video on Breakfast Club I, till today, I think, is still both times Takashi's. It's not. I mean, he's a character, right? He's a character. 
he's, he's a character. And, and, you know, and to that point, like, you know, it's what our audiences have become. They, they like outrage. They like drama. It's got to be an episode. But also, it, I think it's dangerous because we're asking people to become vested in, in these artists' lives. These artists had a hard time keeping up with the public when they didn't have to reply to Instagram and Twitter and always have cameras on them. It's going to lead to some really bad outcomes in the next five to ten years when these people have zero privacy at all. I mean, you got Justin Bieber talking about people camping outside his house like it's a tourist museum. And, you know, and, and now these artists, you, you're asking people to be so vested in you. What makes that hard is, like, for instance, the R. Kelly situation, the Bill Cosby situation, right? In the past, people could separate the art from the artist. Yeah. But in the last 20 years, we've asked people to go headfirst into the artist. Like, you've got to believe in everything the artist believes in. Otherwise, you can't support him. Like, Kanye talked out against, against Biden. Fuck him. We're all off Kanye now. Yeah. Like, all of his music and everything else, right? That's how they move. That's that's going to create a lot of extremism with these with these guys, and it's going to create almost to the level of I'm I'm afraid of how much interaction artists are going to have to do. I think the only way the system is going to work is if you have groups like BTS they are interchangeable, so that once one guy gets burned out, you can plug another one in and keep him moving because it's I don't know how long it's sustainable. Yeah, you think that the fan to artist kind of engagement in this new generation is a different type of relationship than before. And like the follow-up to that is, do you think that the relationship that um, young kids are building with this new generation of artists uh, over social media, do you think that their view of social media uh, is the same as, as we, as I would say like adults view social media in terms of we kind of have it with an asterisk next to it? So, so it's a good question. No, I, I don't. I definitely don't think the interaction is the same. It's it's become all-consuming, which is essentially what I'm saying. Like, the, I don't think the all-consuming can sustain because hu- these artists are still humans, and I don't blame these artists for losing their shit on listeners sometimes because yeah, they wanted the fame, but they're still humans, and humans still need peace and comfort to be able to perform what they're doing. To to your second point about um, whether I think things are gonna are gonna change I, I think that they're going to change a lot more for the for the better as far as the fan experience because they're, they're going to look at social media as here's the thing man social media for us was was a pastime it wasn't a right. livelihood. it's a livelihood now it's it's so of course they look at it differently i mean one of the biggest revenue generators especially in the pandemic is is only fans every little girl thinks she's a porn star now and yeah. and, and to me i think that that's what's hurting the mentality, people are devaluing themselves and, and their own privacy and their own private time and taking away, eventually they're going to lose sight of who they are. I mean, individuality is, the, the, the pursuit of individuality has created so many like-minded group folks, it's not even funny. Yeah. So they all, they yeah. all, and, and part of that is also because they're access to each other, right? The reason we have such extremism going on is because in the past, extremists couldn't find each other very easily. They had to run mm-hmm. in newsletters that were hidden from each other and everything. Now it's blatantly out in the open and you can, and, and Facebook is actually saying, hey, you're extreme. Here's a guy that's even more extreme than you. Go follow him. You can be as extreme as him. That's not extreme enough. Go even extremer. And that's the, you know, to me, one of the worst things that's happened in the last 10 years is the YouTube algorithms. Because if you don't turn off autoplay, if you went in to go research a Nazi or something like that, 20 videos later on autoplay, you are a fucking Nazi because it's like they've gone deeper and, and found things to lead your interest and like, oh, this piece is interest. Let's fit him with this real quick. And it's just terrible. Yeah. People are not thinking anymore. 
Yeah, and that's that's the other. That's actually what I the way I look at it is. I think having the content out there is one thing, but the problem is that we're not training our young people to think critically, right? Right. And actually value and evaluate that content. I mean, there are there still are, and I'm happy to see there are still kids in this generation that do that. But I think that it's not their fault. One, and then the second thing is, how do we reverse course? I think it's great to have all these all this content out there, but you have to be able to train your society to be able to evaluate that properly and not let that influence them. And that, that, that came from having trusted sources and with our administration doing the best they can currently to deviate away from what a trusted source is and having no trusted sources. The problem now is everybody has their own ecospheres of what they trust. And that's where the, the problem comes in is that there's no bridging gap. There's, there's always information out there, but there's nobody that's bridging the gap and saying, let me look at the information on the other side. So, you know, when it comes back to the entertainment business, there, there, there is none of that though. And entertainment business is purely bottom line. And yeah. you know what drives the bottom line is outrage, extremism, shit like that. So again, I'm going to come to a point I know personally where I'm going to have to assess what I feel about my life and my ethics. And one of the reasons actually why I joined Rock Nation is because they're, they're not a typical label about bottom line, bottom dollar and very refreshing to be somewhere where it's about the artistry and excellence and not just how can we make the most amount of money, the fastest off of this commodity. And, you know, the first time I was ever in a, in a A&R meeting of sorts with Jay-Z and he, and he made it very clear that that's not what our goal is and turned down a hit record because it wasn't the sound of the group that they were playing it. I mean, that's, that speaks volumes when you come from a from a different mentality where it's always about how can we make the most. You know, I worked a song called "Crank That Soldier Boy" that that you know that that was terrible. I worked Chief Keef that was terrible. You know, I, I've been a part of quite a few careers that you could say have led to some bad decisions by people. If, if you say music actually is a influencer in life, then I've been part of. But on the flip side, I've, I've worked Common, I've worked Kendrick, I've worked you know some guys that have done positive. So you get to a point, I'm 40 now, where you start thinking, you know, do I want to continue to add positive to the world or negative to the world? And and I'm thankful to be where, you know, and not only active in music, rock is very philanthropically active too. So it's it's very exciting, man. It's, at least I'm at the right place in my time. And, and I wanted to ask you about that, right? With, with Jay-Z, kind of what Rock Nation was is they were independent label, but they've kind, he's kind of maneuvered his career as a businessman into a position where Rock Nation has got the same resources that every, they are a major label. So, to your point, yeah, we're, we're indie major. We're, yeah. we're still an independent label. We're yeah. independent label, but, but we're treated like a major because of the, the respect we, we, we demand out there. Absolutely. Bro, I'm telling you the attention to the detail is, is insane. Like, our, I get calls from Jay Brown because Rihanna's featured on someone else's record. And then we want he wants to make sure that they do a good job on that record because one of our clients is on that record. That's excellence right there. Yeah. Like they 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 have a way they expect things to be done and it's, and it's not cutting corners and I respect that because in this business it's easy to cut corners and that leads to not longevity. And and not cutting corners leads to a long-lasting career in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. When you look at um like in the path in today's era, uh, we've talked about you know, all of these platforms that if you leverage uh, moments of extremism, you can get these flash in the pan moments of getting a lot of eyes on an artist, right? Um, if you were building a new act today, 
would you leverage any of these uh, platforms in a different way where you could not only build some of this hype um, in specific moments, but um, would you be able to integrate them with an artist to create some longevity at the same time uh, without sacrificing the benefits that can come from social media use? So I don't believe in reinventing the wheel. That's not something I believe in. If those things are working on social media, by all means, do them. But don't just do them. Don't be vapid right. and just do that. And then the second you stop doing that, there's no substance left to you. So to your point, I don't think you should forego doing the challenges and, and the stupid shit on, on online that gets the attention. But I think you should definitely do much more work than just that. Don't be boonk, boonk gang, that moron whose old fucking social media was just to do stupid shit and rob stores and, and act stupid and be tattered across his face. Like that's... That's not a substantial career unless you're okay with making a flash in the pan money. And I mean, I'm not saying, I'm not against that, trust me. If that's what he does and it makes him money, by all means, take that money, invest it into something else that's, that's more long lasting and sustainable. How long can you sustain being someone that breaks in the stores, gets hit in the face and does wacky, stupid shit before you get arrested, robbed or, or killed? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and then, go ahead. Uh, just, just jump in. The, the way I've always thought about it is um, the, the little pumps of the world. I've always thought, they're great marketers, but who are the great artists, you know? And I'm not sure we've really seen uh, a great hybrid of a marketer and an artist other than really like a Drake who's maintained his, his excellence in this social media era, really leveraged meme culture, TikTok, um, all of that to maintain his, his kind of number one status. Um, for an up and coming artist, how can they maintain their, their artistry and what should they be thinking about you talked about having something more than just the marketing skills. I think a lot of Gen Z is very, very good at this marketing side, but how can they get better at being an artist? Yeah, because it can be confusing, right, for them, especially real artists. Like, they want to do what everyone else is doing, but they're feeling that 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 tor terror with, I'm an artist, I want to stay true to my art, balancing that as well, just as to piggyback oh, to our same part. It's, it's exactly that. It's be authentic to yourself. Do the other shit. But do it authentically and, and find more like-minded like yourself. Don't be afraid to spend on ads that target demos. Like that's a, a, an insanely helpful thing that people don't take advantage of. Just Instagram and Facebook can really help follow your growing. The same way they use those algorithms to find what might pique my interest in a video, they know how to find people that will get pique their interest on your profile and your, your music, right? So keep building out. Because if you if you get that viral moment and you haven't built out enough of a base that is like you or like minded like you, then you're liable to lose your sight and move on to the wrong way. If you have enough of a base, it'll be then it'll be a flash in the pan moment, like you said, and you can go on. I work Lil Nas X. I was the most excited guy about that record when they signed it at Columbia. The entire urban department thought I was batshit crazy. And they're like, what is this crap? And it's never going to work. They were all over 45, 50 years old. I was the only guy under 40 when they signed that and worked it. And I had, I had added on my own Spotify playlist for a month before they signed it just because it had come up and the shit was catchy and my kids liked it. <clears throat> so you never know. But the problem with him was he didn't have any like-minded fans or any, any kind of base. So he's gone ghost. Like it, it became all about that country view. And then nobody knew what the rest of his music was like. The, the follow-up wasn't that hot didn't catch, and now he's just gone ghost. So it's, yeah. it's you got to build up a base or keep building it when that, if that flash in the fan happens too early. 
That's a great point, by the way, on Lil Nas X. The follow-up didn't sound like the hit at all. No. Very hard to maintain a brand when you do it. And the label was not happy about him coming out. They didn't want him to come out. Yeah. It's, it's historic, too, right? It's not Lil Nas X is the latest example, but for every year you've been in the industry, there's been an artist who's had the number one song but couldn't do anything afterwards, right? It's like maintaining... And, and sometimes one hit is enough to sustain you for the rest of your life. Well, it really is. If you want to tour in Europe and Asia, there there are people still touring from the 1980s single hit wonders. Yes. Yes. But what becomes difficult is if you're an artist and you get that one hit and you're not able to continue to develop your, your yeah. art because you your first hit is the biggest hit ever. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and, you, and, and you've worked with, with artists across the board, right? You've worked with the artists that have that kind of pop, pop success and then you have the artists who have the consistency and i would argue that however you build your model if you're a true artist you have to focus on the artists and following the model of artists who built a model that's sustainable yeah right? versus the marketing so, to give you an example of the other side of that one of my actual the artist i'm most proud of working with because i did it all by myself and without a label and had a lot of success was a, a guy named afrobeat we had a song called joanna uh, it was actually Drogba. And this song was huge in, in Africa and the UK in 2018, 17, 2017, right? 2018 as well. Then they came to the States and it started popping off in New York. And these guys found their way to me. And they're like, hey, we'd like you to work this song in America. And America was not ready. Amer American urban radio doesn't play reggae very much or Afro wave music. And at the same time, da Davido had a record who's much bigger act. Davido was a billionaire from Nigeria with a huge act. Um, I went out by myself and I got this record number 12 and it was because these guys had laid the foundation and work. And a lot of people don't realize that the general audience, 95% of the world is not looking for the hottest, newest music. That's not, how music actually works. They want familiarity, they want comfort, they want to enjoy it. New music makes most people tune out. They actually, human nature doesn't like new and change. They like comfort and familiar. So this record just kept on generating more and more fans because it was already a year and a half old. It had permeated into so many places already that once we got it onto radio, it was like half the audience knew it, the other half lost their mind like, oh shit, what is this? This is dope. Like, how did this get here? And I mean, it got to the point where even RCA was calling people angry that this independent artist, Afro B, was getting much more looks than Davido. But it was because that record had already done its job. It had created such a large fan base and it wasn't being forced on anyone by a label saying, you need to like this because we just put it out three months ago and you have to like it so we can make money. It was literally, this was the most organic record I've ever worked. Everywhere I got it played, it would come back top 10, top five Shazam, and I would go back and show the radio station and it would eventually grow. And it was it was beautiful to see cause and effect and to see the actual growth of an act and breaking an act from beginning to end using an older platform that people thought was not viable to break an act. The guy yeah. toured for an entire year in America off that. He's still touring in England and they just put an Ozuna remix out that got over 500 million streams. It's amazing. Wow. Wow. Yeah. One song. He's had a career for three years off one song and that's because he developed the fan base off of it and did the right work. That building. One thing I wanted to, to, to jump in and ask you about is um, being Persian, right? And, and now at Rock Nation, you've also gotten the opportunity to come full circle and, and work a little bit with Snow Allegra. I just want to hear 
your thoughts on that and your feeling like 17 years later. I got it. Awesome that you even put that together, bro. Cause that, that has been a real blessing. Like when they announced that we signed snow, I was very excited because I have never had the chance to work with a Persian artist and not especially someone of her caliber too. It's like, she's immensely gracious and like, and to be honest, it, her, her face did light up a little bit when we spoke Farsi to each other. And that's how Persians are. Like when yeah. we come across another Persian in public, especially, especially in an unfamiliar setting, like I run into a Persian in Beverly Hills and I'm like, okay, great. It's another fucking Persian. Like we're all over the place out here. But in the music business where it's it's not very many Persians out here and I, and we can speak farce at each other in a room full of high level executives and have no clue what the fuck we're saying. It's it's a great feeling. It feels very, very good that I'm finally in a position where I can help someone of my own, own background too. It, it really is. I mean, you touched it, bro. Like it, it means a lot to me to be able to work with Snow and to watch her success keep growing and growing. And she's an amazing artist. Yes, she is. Yes, she yeah. is. That's pretty cool, man. It's really nice to see that come full circle. And uh, you are one of the trailblazers in the industry. That's yeah, thank cool you. Thing. Yeah. And, and by the way, one, one of my close friends is an Indian guy too, by the way. He's, he's a Brahmin. So I hope the cast get along here. We're all good. Oh, we're, we're all good. We're all good. Yeah. <laughs> so I know, I know you're a busy guy. We kind of rearrange, rearrange things with the, the time zones and everything. But wanted to get, ask you a couple questions right yep. before we get you out of here on unrelated fun stuff, just to get a gauge of like who inspires you, right? You've gotten a chance to work with a lot of artists. So the first question is, who are your top five personal artists that you feel like have had the most impact on you? Oh man, uh, I've got to be honest. One of my favorite artists I've ever worked with, despite his buffoonery, is definitely 50 Cent. He's, he's one of the most charismatic, hardest working, intelligent, just human intelligence type people. He's, he's a human intelligence guy and emotionally intelligent and he knows how to work people. And it's, it comes yeah. back to what I said, like the guy is he's a genius. Yes. Yeah. Um, after that, I got to say common was definitely one of my blessings to work with. He's, he's so humble and down. I mean, the first time I did radio with a guy, he jumped in the car by, by himself. I, I'm waiting for his entourage to show up and he's like, who are you waiting for? They, they want to talk to them too. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. Let's go. Like I respect this. Um, I definitely respect Rico Love for his intelligence and his ability to express himself. Great guy to work with, very warm, very intelligent. Um, it's hard to really give you a top five. I mean, I enjoy Ray Stremert because of their energy and their, their enthusiasm and their humility and how fun they were to work with. Uh, Keisha Cole was a good person. I wouldn't say she was great to work with, but a great person to be around. Um, you know, there were there were some I didn't care for too, but you know, those those are probably my my favorite ones to have been around. Nice, and I'll let, I'll let Partha ask you the second one. It's unreal. Awesome. And then your uh, top five athletes. Oh man, I'm I'm a huge golfer, bro, and and I understand. And if you guys understand golf at all, it's it's the one sport that all other athletes aspire to master too. So to me, it's the hardest sport. So to me, it's got to be Tiger, Jack Nicklaus. Um, Sam Snead, who was a great golfer. I also think that Kobe Bryant was an amazing human being, an individual, and, and his ethic. I mean, his ethic is, they call it the Mamba mentality and whatnot, but essentially it's it's a way to encapsulate what we talked about and what I think set me ahead in this business is just focus and, and ability to finish and come through. And um, I mean, another great another great athlete, in my opinion, is Pele, because Pele did what he did at a time that he did it and the way he did it. and 
with the energy and the long lasting in the whole world, like Pele was awesome. So I, I, I admire those that overcome adversity too. So, you know, that's also why Tiger is as amazing as he is. Those are, those are great lists, man. Those are really good picks, man. Thank you so much for taking time. Um, another time we definitely like to have you on again. Um, when your time allows, these conversations are great. Maybe you can get Mick on at the same time. He don't talk to me anymore. We can, we can, we can actually catch up we'll on this podcast. You know, Mick is too big for everybody these days. <laughs> you got to email him. You got to email him. <laughs> I'm messing around, man. Hey, Mick Boogie. I'm sorry, DJ Mick. I'll make sure. I'll make sure he gets this message. <laughs> great having you. Hopefully, you guys can connect and let's 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 circle back. Much love and and continue winning and keep continue working hard. And continue changing people's lives. Reza. Thank you, brother. Much love, guys. Good to meet you, Parthen. Thanks, Reza. Ondo Media here in Columbus has been working with us to keep the Pilot Boys in production during the pandemic, as well as getting our YouTube videos going. It's all about telling your story to your audience. So give John at Ondo Media a shout. You can find all of their media consulting at ondomedia.com. It's time to hit some news and notes. Are you ready, Partha? I am so ready. Let's get it. Well, first... Okay. The first thing we're going to talk about is um, what's happening recently with Twitter and Facebook. It's a, it's a very interesting conversation that puts us in kind of a catch-22 and puts these platforms in a catch-22 because on one hand, um, there's a lot of misinformation and a lot of bad data that's constantly being put on social social media that oftentimes leads to ill effects and manipulation of people and in, in, in sometimes very dangerous ways. But on the other hand, we live in a country that promotes free speech and the ability to say and do whatever you want to do. Um, and Twitter and Facebook recently um, have been taking the step of censoring um, certain things in a lot regards to our president and some of the things that he tweets. Um, just want to see what your thoughts on that were, where you fell on this, on this spectrum of, of what these, uh, platform should do. You know, it's, it's such an interesting debate because you have the platform publisher kind of duality with social media platforms in general, because the algorithms provide this unique megaphone effect that doesn't really do what a megaphone does in the sense that it just broadcasts to everybody around you, but instead it targets and chooses who hears certain things or see certain things, right? So mm-hmm. um, when you add that element in, it really starts to bend the rules of even the traditional definition definitions of what a publisher or a platform is. And so the big challenge here is, are we even in a new category? Or if, if social media platforms are able to say, hey, this should be shared, this should not be shared on our platform, um, if they have that discrimination, do they end up as a publisher? And in my mind, the second you start, you know, dictating what is or is not shared, then all of a sudden you're publishing that content. But at the same time, um, there's a unique wrinkle in this argument because of the effect of the algorithms on how fake or false information can spread. But at the same time, I think people should be free to be able to believe in whatever the heck they want to believe in. That's a big part of this country. What do you think? Yeah. And I think, I think also, I don't, I think banning it is one thing, like, like just taking it off their site, but I think putting a disclaimer on it that the, the information hasn't been verified or, or if it's uh if it's opinion based, I think that that can be helpful. 
um, just because we are seeing some of the dangerous fallout um, from this, right? And and me personally, like I'm probably not all the way on the free speech spectrum in terms of mm-hmm. just let anyone say anything all the time, because I think throughout history, we've seen examples of people spreading misinformation, people digesting that in one case in specifically is what the, the kidnapping plot with the governor, right? In, yeah. In Michigan. So things like that. Um, I do think there is some responsibility, um, but I don't think that it should be all the way in the extreme where they can start censoring content. If someone wants to, to engage in, in hate speech and, and, and racist rhetoric with people, this country allows for that. And so I don't know if we can just change that, you know? Yeah, man, I totally agree. And it's, it's such a nuanced position that the social media platforms have been put in because I think these are unintended consequences of the platforms that they built. And I think there's a presumption of truth that people have when they hop onto, say, a Twitter or a Facebook because of the many news organizations on there, because of the many, you know, even the verification check marks. Um, these platforms are in a unique place to be able to dictate what we believe to be you know, in, in truth, valuable in our society. And because of that, um, the free speech argument, I agree, gets a little bit broken because when you have the ability to convince people like what they're hearing is real or not real based on putting a check mark on an account or not putting mm-hmm. a check mark on an account or pushing something in the algorithm or not pushing something, even if it's AI or machine learning doing that, that's still your, your product that you built. It's having that effect on society. And so it definitely challenges a lot of the notions that we grew up with, which is, you know, you could say whatever you want, except for fire in a crowded movie theater, basically. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this, this is a conversation that I don't think we're going to, it's good to have, right? The conversation itself is something I think we as a society need to engage in. And hopefully it leads to um, a position that's, that's fair because you're seeing you know, far right conservatives taking one hard line positions, far left liberals taking a hard line position. And the truth is, I think both of us agree that the it's somewhere in the middle, right? And that middle middle ground needs to be figured out. And that's what happens when you have new technology and new spaces is it takes time to figure out the solutions to some of these problems. Totally agree. And I think one of the challenges that we're going to have is that the, um, the legislation, if you were to take that approach to this problem, is very, very tricky uh, mm-hmm. because we have kind of been in the midst of this cultural evolution where social media has really changed the way we perceive the world and perceive information. And so um, I've also thought kind of the difference between a legislative approach to you know solve uh, some of these issues versus just waiting for the cultural change to happen where we just value social media less in our lives because of these compounding effects. And I think that we're trending into that place. You know, I saw, I saw this quote on Twitter. Um, somebody was saying Twitter is the, uh, the new version of the public square. And yeah. someone said back, you know, it's, it's not just the public square. Twitter is the Arby's in the public square. There's so <laughs> much else out there. Right. Yeah. And you have to really understand that these platforms that, you know, we, we give so much news coverage, we talk about so much are really just, tech companies and communities that have been built and why should Twitter be more trustworthy than Reddit or Facebook and what role do these all play in our lives? I think, um, you know, especially on the heels of that, uh, that 
social media documentary on Netflix, I think everybody has to ask themselves these questions about how impactful is what I read on the internet or on my phone in my day-to-day life. Yes, yes, exactly. And I think it's also, there's a generational gap, right? There are a lot of people still who grew up reading newspapers and going there for information. But I think it's important for those people to also understand that there's another population of people who do go to these platforms to get their information and their knowledge. Um, And that there are issues with both forms. There are issues with mass media as well and mass news agencies as well that we have um, that I think we, we, the conversation needs to continue. And, and the most important thing is for us to have the conversation and smart people to figure this out. Yes. And so talking about conversation and talking about social media, one of, one of our favorite social figures got absolutely roasted last week, Mr. Ice Cube. Yes. <laughs> so he got roasted for um, what people saw as collaborating um, with uh, Trump and, and our current, uh, you know, White House structure. And um, I think there was a lot of friction because he outlined this plan um, to help bring some, I think, I don't know if it was equality or equity um, to black America, but really to help with uh, some of this social progression that everybody's looking for um, to help everybody have a fair shot in America, which is, I think everyone's in agreement in this country that that's, that's a core value here, that everybody has the same opportunity to succeed. Yes. And so he put this plan out and there's all this friction because uh, he said the Democrat said, we'll talk to you after the election. And Trump said, okay, cool. Thanks for sharing that. We've incorporated these elements into the plan. And many people, I think, felt betrayed that he had collaborated with the Trump administration. So what's your take on that, B? Well, I mean, I think this is, these are one, this is one of the issues that I have with Twitter, right? I, I love it as a platform because I always look for context. Mm-hmm. And I think it's so easy. It's such a reactionary platform. We see the 140 characters or the headline uh, Ice Cube. Uh, meets with Donald Trump, and that's all we read into it, right? Yeah. But I think when you have a take a more nuanced approach and you understand what politics actually is and how politics actually works, when things get done, you have to be willing to talk to people that you don't necessarily agree with, especially when they're in a position of power. Donald Trump, yeah. you know, whatever you think of him, him and his administration does have a lot of power currently. And I think when you read, read into read into exactly how this whole scenario happened, and Ice Cube has a very good explanation for it. And then also we have to give certain people that have earned benefit of the doubt, benefit of the doubt. Ice Cube has historically shown who he is, both as an artist and as as a as a, a spokesperson, right? And as yeah. as a figurehead yeah. for for change, right? He is very clear in his thinking and very smart. And I think what happened here was he tried to reach out to the Democrats and the Democrats kind of gave him lip service. He reached out to the Republicans as well and they didn't give him lip service. They took him seriously. Maybe it was, they had ulterior motives, but from what I'm reading, he actually got a commitment from the Trump administration to put $500 billion into the black community. And at the end of the day, I think we all need to kind of start thinking that way for our country to progress. 
right? And he didn't say, I'm voting for him. He didn't say any of that. He didn't come out and campaign for Donald Trump. So I feel like a lot of this, a lot of this heat that he's receiving is, is very unfair. And I think it's driven by what drives the algorithms that you are talking about. 100%. And I think, I think you, you touched on a really important point. You cannot be mad at the Republican Senate for not being bipartisan and at the same time get upset at Ice Cube for being bipartisan. That's yeah. just not how it works. You can't have it both ways. No, you can't. Not at all. Not at all. But, you know, and I think Ice Cube, the good thing about this scenario is I think that Ice Cube is very well equipped to handle this scenario and deal, <laughs> and deal with the fallout. And the truth is, I think there's there's something to be said in life is to 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 he's always going to be himself. He's yeah. established who he is. And I don't think he's really worried about what a few hundred thousand people on Twitter decide about him um, yeah. based on this. So long as his intentions are pure, I don't think that you can really have any issue with what he did. Yeah. Plus it, I mean, whether, you know, whether um, the Trump administration gets real, actually ends up implementing this or not, I think it's a win in general to bring this up in the conversation, to give his plan that he had put together that much publicity and to get that many people talking about it. I think in general, it makes it a more viable option to build into policy in the future. So I think that's, that's the win on his end. Yes, exactly. And just the thought itself, right? From the very beginning, he's like, I need these candidates to tell me exactly what they're going to do for people like yep. me and what I'm interested in, right? That's politics. You fight. That's what lobbyists do. Everyone is fighting for their fair shake. And I think the thought, like you said, in itself is something that's progressive and something that that's the takeaway from this thing, I think. Absolutely. So Ice Cube, we support you. We got your back, man. We got your back. <laughs> some, some, some interesting notes on the, the more nefarious end of the spectrum. Uh, the court has ruled that Ghislaine Maxwell will have to disclose the deposition that she had in the Jeffrey Epstein case. So who knows what's in that? But now we're all going to hear and find out what, what was going on here with Jeffrey Epstein and his illicit web. You know, this, this one's so crazy because I have not been really following this Epstein stuff. You know, you're better, it's, for, it's it. you're better, you're better for it. Yeah. It's a lot of noise, but uh, I can't admit, uh, I can't help but admit that I'm definitely curious to see what this brings. And, you know, maybe I'll, I'll try and catch this documentary in the next few days so I can get up to speed. Oh, the documentary, you know, you have to be in the, the mood where you want to watch, you have, you don't you want to have that negative energy enter your life, but it's very, very good and very, very revealing, right? About just how corrupt power can be. And yeah. I think it's important for all of us to understand that because when we look at our political figures, we have to stop looking at them, I think, in a purely idealistic sense, right? Because nobody's, yeah. Once you get power, almost any person who gets that level of power becomes corrupted. But within that, they still are the people we look to to make decisions. So we have to make decisions taking that into account and not necessarily always being idealist, right? Totally. Totally not, agree. And and we need to put people, people like Jeffrey Epstein, just to give this context and the things that he did, not supporting him at all, um, the guy deserved his fate, in my opinion. Awesome. So talking about power, 
we move on to maybe the one person that will have more power than our presidential candidates, the, uh, the debate moderator and the debate commission, who's going to be muting these mics at the start of each segment. Uh, honestly, going to be hilarious. I'm really excited to tune in. I am as well. I mean, this is, this is a good step and probably the only step, but I am, <laughs> I am interested in what these candidates will do despite it. Right. Like right. I would not be surprised if they just start screaming <laughs> over, the, <laughs> over the mic. Um, but I do think this is, this is valuable because I think in the, the, the first debate was clearly an embarrassment to our country and our, yeah. and, and to, to actually give these guys an opportunity to speak. What I'm seeing is they'll have both have two minutes uninterrupted to state whatever they have to say. And then we'll get into the messy back and forth debate. I think it's important for whoever's undecided. I think most people are probably decided at this point on who they're going to vote for. But for the undecided, I think it is important still for them to be able to hear from each candidate and, and make that decision. And this will definitely help that. And I think it's a great solution um, that, that didn't ruffle too many feathers. 100%. I think, you know, moments of, I would say, whether it's, it's weakness or embarrassment nationally, I think those are important moments because they remind us of the decorum we all grew up watching in politics where people were very kind during debates, very respectful to one another. And I, I felt that uh, the VP debate was a nice kind of reset to show everybody, hey, um, regardless of the fact that we're very p passionate up here arguing, we're all on the same team. And that used to be more of the forefront on the presidential side. So whenever there's one of these negative events, I always like to think, you know, those are important because it shows us exactly why we care so much about having conversations with people we disagree with but having them in very civil and kind tones where we understand that even though this person might see the world differently than us, that's still uh, one of our fellow citizens. That's somebody we care about, we love, and we are all fighting because we don't want to just help ourselves. We want to help each other. And hopefully we, we get that sense from both candidates in this next debate. Yeah. And it's critical for the future of our country that we kind of realign with those values and, and put aside um, some of this divisiveness, there's always going to be divisiveness, right? Yeah. But just how, how prevalent that is. And I think it's just become too prevalent um, yeah. at this point in our dialogue around politics. Yeah. Um, I'm going to transition a little bit to sports here and talk about this guy, Derek Henry, man. What is he? Is he human? Like, did you see that run he made? Like he's six, three, 260 pounds. He hit 21.9 miles per hour on that run. And when they asked him about it, he said, that was too slow. <laughs> so what are we seeing from this guy? Have we ever seen anything like him before? He's unbelievable, man. And, you know, and it's interesting because in football, getting that fast is very different than doing it in, say, track or field, right? Because yeah. you have to dodge people. You have to get yourself going. I mean, just just to be able to carry that level of athleticism and to do it on the travel schedule that these athletes are on, on the sleep schedule they're on. That's just unreal. It's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. And it's, it's fun for us because we get to keep seeing the highlights, man, and excited for him and excited for the Titans, Titans future. They have a special one. Yeah. Yeah. They, I mean, gosh, I mean, the Titans made such a run last year. I was 
so excited to see that happen. So, yep. yeah. you know, they've not, I don't think they've been really great in my lifetime unless, no, maybe the Eddie George days. The Eddie were, George days yeah. and, and Steve McNair, they made a Super Bowl with that yeah. team. But, but since then, it's, um, they haven't really done too much. And it's always good to see these kind of, smaller market teams make yeah. noise. And I'm big yeah. big fan of Mike Vrabel. He's he's an Ohio State guy. Yeah. Um, and and really happy for him as well. Yeah, it's really nice to see just in general. I'm a big fan of when athletes are able to sustain a high level of competition and um get better. You know what I mean? It's it's inspiring as hell to be able to see these guys do things that, you know, not only can nobody else do it, but then they do it over and over and over and over again. Yeah, their careers—it's unreal. So shout out Derek Henry, way to go! Definitely, definitely. And some more news: the the Dodgers, your your new hometown baseball yeah. team, um, they looked like they were in trouble down three one, but the talent took over, and they decided when their backs were against the wall, they they finished stronger in the World Series, facing a very very good Tampa Bay team, and it's kind of that clash, right? That traditional David versus Goliath. You have the big market team, unlimited money, all these big name players versus the Devil Rays who developed their players through the farm system. Don't have a huge payroll. I think I read that their entire roster was equivalent to the payroll of like this one of the starting pitchers for the for the Yankees. <laughs> so t- tell me who you got uh, and what are you looking forward to in this series? So I've definitely got the Dodgers. I mean, for two reasons. One, because I live in LA, but also they work with us at Lasso's. They actually use our product to help their players, whether it's during practice or uh, injury recovery, that sort of thing. So obviously I'm biased, uh, but I also have the pleasure of actually watching game one in person tonight. So I'm in Texas right now to do that. So I'm, I'm really excited, but um I, I am really, really a big fan of the Dodgers brand and what they mean to to this country. So um, I'm excited to see it. I know that's probably not the underdog story, but I'm actually I I tend to usually support the not the underdog. I usually like to see just greatness occur over and over again with well built teams and well built systems. So that's what I'm rooting for this year. Yeah, and I think there's also I mean there's they're different than the Yankees, right? In the sense that yeah. the Yankees, the, the Dodgers actually are kind of a new player in this, like we're going to do whatever it takes to win and having that mentality. And I think whether you, I know I, I root for the underdog just as everyone else, but I think there's something also valuable in understanding franchises who are like, we haven't won in a while mm-hmm. and we're going to make the investment and figure out how to compete and we're going to get the players, you know, every opportunity that we get to improve our team, we're going to take it regardless of the cost and not just thinking about only the dollars and cents. Yeah. Um, and I think that there's, there's value in appreciating that with the Dodgers too. I don't, I don't have a dog in the race. Um, whoever, whoever wins, I'm going to be, be excited for, but I guess I'll be a Dodgers fan because you gave me <laughs> a reason to be. Yeah. And you know, you know, it's like, uh, the NBA finals this year, right? Like just watching Miami, how, how they've yeah. maintained such an excellent organization for the last, you know, 20 something years. I mean, you love to see great systems flourish. Yes. And, you know, and, and speaking of basketball, you know, like last week, LeBron James won his fourth, 
fourth ring. I know you have yeah. some thoughts about it. I have some thoughts about it. We're both big LeBron fans, but I want to speak about it and kind of segue with what you were saying in context of this, this Jordan-LeBron debate. I know you are more of a LeBron era guy, right? And in, in terms of growing up with LeBron, I grew, up, I grew up with Jordan. And what I see are, are stark differences in the approach to winning, right? And their approach mm-hmm. to the game. But you can't, it, there's so many different ways to skin a cat. I don't even really like comparing the two guys. I was having this conversation because, first of all, they play different positions. Yep. And they have a different approach to the game. I'm just curious to, to see if you have a position on that debate and, and how you view this whole GOAT conversation what whoever your goat is and how you evaluate it totally well and i i think you bring up a good point right which is how do you define what you consider your goat to be and for me you know it's, it's a really mixed bag because i can't take anything away from jordan he's unbelievable he, he mm-hmm. was just I, I watched that whole last dance documentary twice it was yeah so unbelievable and I learned a lot about running a business just from his mentality on the court and how he approached winning and you know the game of basketball uh, but at the same time growing up and being in I think I was in middle school or early high school when LeBron was like getting all of his his clout for the first time and really becoming a national name and seeing all that happen being in Ohio witnessing the energy and then actually seeing him play in Cleveland, seeing him play in Miami, and uh, now seeing him in LA, now that I'm out there as well. I mean, it's, it's just been unbelievable to watch his journey. And for me, I think rings are a bad measure because rings are a team uh, metric. Yeah. They're not, you know, in business, you talk about key, uh, KPIs, key performance indicators. You don't measure an individual player's success with a team metric. And if you look at all the individual metrics, LeBron has, uh, if you were, if you were look across the board, um, he's the best or one of the best in almost every metric, especially when you look at playoff performance. So it's a very, very hard argument to take anything away from him. I think most of what I sense from uh, people who, who prefer Jordan is that they feel that Jordan was more of an underdog athletically because LeBron is built so large, but let's not forget that Jordan set the record for vertical jump in the NBA combine at 48 inches. Yeah. He was one of the most athletically talented people we've ever seen. He was playing in an era without, um, without uh, zone defense. Yeah. So the defenses he was playing against the, the way the game was played, uh, whether you have or don't have hand checks, I think is a totally different game. So it's very hard to compare the two. So kind of in that camp where I don't like to compare the two, but for me personally, what LeBron has done off the court has just been unbelievably inspiring to see somebody excel not only in basketball, but in business and in nonprofit. And uh, to make the kind of statements he's made, uh, being an athlete and dealing with all the flack that he's gotten uh, for trying to have a voice politically. Um, I think he's picked his battles well in terms of what issues he fights for and which ones he, he chooses not to, not to make a statement about. I think those are smart decisions he's making because he has a lot of business interest to protect, but yeah. I think he's handed the modern day person kind of a playbook on how to navigate uh, 2020 and how to build not only a great personal brand, but also a lot of financial success at the same time. Yeah. And I think that's why he's a little bit more polarizing, right? Because he's not afraid 
to speak his mind. And, and some people do are in that camp of shut up and dribble. And he's, he's never going to let people dictate who he is. And that's something that I admire uh, deeply about him. And I also think that it's, it's important in evaluating this situation to understand that you have to have trailblazers, right? I, th- I look at LeBron and I look at him as a progression of what Jordan is because what Jordan did from a branding standpoint with the Jordan brand and personal identity paved the way for a lot of this generation of athletes to do what they're doing. LeBron yeah. obviously has more power as a result of what guys like Jordan Barkley and even before that, the original founders of, of basketball, Bill Russell. And it's always important to value. And I think all the players, you know, and that's something Jordan's very mindful of is, is, is saying that, look, there would be no Michael Jordan if there wasn't a Bill Russell and there would be yeah. no LeBron James if there wasn't a Michael Jordan. I think it's important, valuable for us all to kind of keep that in context. And we all want to say that one person is better than the other, but it's a, it's a very, very uh, narrow way to look at things. Yeah, and you make a really good argument right there, too, in, in bringing up Bill Russell's name. If you're going to make a rings argument, that's your guy. Yeah, exactly. And then there's the Kareem Abdul-Jabbar crowd. Like, there's what yeah. can you say to negate his accomplishments, both at the college yeah. and NBA level, right? Yeah. So there, are, there are a lot of, I think the best thing for us to do is evaluate each of these. Like, I like to actually, like you do, study what makes great athletes great. And I think Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is a unique case study in greatness. Right. Yeah. As as is Bill Russell, and each of these people are some are things that you can add tools to your toolkit in your journey to success as well, and not to just say, "Oh, I don't like that guy." Don't, there's something to be taken from every single person that's been great. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I definitely think that when you're able to look at these people not emotionally, but rather as just role models, you're able to pick little bits and pieces from everybody's games that translate into day-to-day life. And I mean, at the end of the day, what do we watch sports for? Obviously entertainment, but also to be inspired, you know, to, to have an emotional connection with a player or a team and to let that give us some meaning. And really at the end of the day, hope in our lives, because if we don't have that life turns pretty bleak pretty quickly. So we rely on these players, we rely on these debates, and we rely on sports to give us something to care about outside of our own personal lives. And uh, I think that every single player that we've mentioned has changed the way we think about not only performance and winning, but excellence and given us all something to strive for. So on that note, I mean, I'm, I'm a huge fan of people that have great habits and know how to think on a level that um, allows them to play the game differently than most of their competition. I think Jordan, Bill Russell, Kareem, LeBron, they all do that. Yep. Can't forget about Kobe. Kobe for sure, man. Yes. Yes. And I think that's a, that's a great way to end this segment. That's all we have for news and notes. Catch up with us next week. Love the pilot boys podcast. Support us on Patreon. Supporters can pledge as little as $1. We have some cool perks on there. Check out www.patreon.com forward slash pilot boys podcast. Show us some love today. That's all we have for today's show. Thanks for tuning in. Want to thank our guest Reza Sarafia and also Zach Smith for coming in and talking to us about college football. I know everyone's excited about Ohio State season starting. And also, 
one and welcome. I hope you guys enjoyed our first show with our new co-host Partha um, and looking forward to doing many more. And always remember, be you. You is fly.